You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where we do our best to bring you into the world of rules-based investing by sharing our knowledge and hard-learned lessons over the past few decades, hoping that you can avoid making some of the mistakes that we did. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you here and we look forward to our journey together. Moritz is uh, unfortunately unable to join us uh, today, but he will be back next week. So let me start as usual by saying good afternoon to you, Jerry. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. How are you? It's the uh, yes. first time I've ever, I've ever been able to say good afternoon <laughs> because we're recording in the afternoon in Eastern time. So I yeah. miss Moritz, but hopefully next week. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to fix his technical issues for sure um, before next week. I want to start out just giving a big shout out to Spy Surfer who jumped into the Canadian iTunes store this week and left a very nice rating and review. Uh, we highly appreciate this, uh, which I'm sure you have already heard me say, um, but also I wanna give a shout out to everyone else who took time to leave a, a rating and review in their local iTunes store. I don't check all of them, so uh, I kind of follow the US and Canadian one in particular. Uh, so appreciate that. Um, and by the way, if you wanna leave us a rating review, which we of course uh, would appreciate as it supports the podcast in a great way, um, there are instructions how to do that. If you go to toptradersandplug.com forward slash review and as something brand new, literally just installed that in the last few minutes before going on air today. Um, we're gonna try and also take maybe some of your comments, um, not necessarily questions to begin with, but if you have some comments for us that you want to try and leave on a voicemail, uh, you can do that now uh, if you go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail. And we'll do our very best to play them, uh, if they're nice, of course, uh, on the show uh, each week. So, um, yeah, toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail. I hope it works. We literally just set it up uh, a few minutes ago. Let's jump into this uh, week's uh, kind of review of the markets, um, an eventful week to say the least. Uh, US stocks uh, losing ground every day of the week uh, as we saw investors, uh, you know, sought refuse in the uh, fixed income markets in gold and in, in the yen. Um, of course, I'm sure many investors after a week like this are asking themselves, what does these words the Fed uh, came out with mid cycle correction really mean, uh, or adjustment, I think uh, he used. Um, so, um, of course, that creates a lot of uncertainty. Of course, a lot of the old thinking uh, has been to buy uh, on the expectation of uh, the US Fed cutting rates. Um, the thinking, of course, has been, you know, weak economy means rate cuts, means economic stimulus. That means stronger GDP, higher corporate profits, higher stock prices. Um, but perhaps there's a little bit more to this story now. Um, even though as rule-based investors, uh, I'm sure you will agree that we don't really worry about uh, the Fed uh, as such. We just uh, follow the price 
uh, and this week was no different. Um, I also came across kind of a funny, uh, <laughs> well, at least funny to me, cartoon this week. I'm sure a lot of you saw it. It came from uh, Howard Marks's latest uh, memo, I think it was, uh, that I enjoyed reading. And it was a cartoon of, of quite a lo- an old one, almost 40 years old. And, and you see this chap watching television on a small screen, watching the news, and, and, and the newsreader was saying, on Wall Street today, news of low interest rates send the stock market up, but then expectations that these rates would be inf- uh, inflationary send the market down, until realization that lower rates might stimulate the sluggish economy, push the market back up, before ultimately it went down on fears that an overheated economy would lead to Reimposition of higher interest rates. So complete confusion, um, and I'm sure a lot of investors felt that way after uh, the last couple of days of the week. Um, now, confusion uh, and uh, somewhat elevated volatility uh, was actually pretty good um, for the uh, trend followers. Um, I think, generally speaking, it was a good week. Uh, on our side, it certainly was uh, pretty solid, um, and um, you know we saw uh, nice gains, of course, uh, with fixed income coming back to to inflate in favor after the um, after the Fed uh, decision. Um, equities losing a bit of ground uh, there, of course. Uh, gold did well, um, and uh, some of the uh, currencies did okay. Um, we were short sort of the Japanese equity, so they did fine. Um, so all in all, um, you know, a continuation of what we've seen so far this year. In fact, I got a question, um, not uh, maybe a question I think that may come up later in the show today, but someone just um, sent me an email saying, you know, with all this uncertainty and, and, and everything going on, isn't that causing an issue for trend followers? And, and of course, the answer is, well, as long as the volatility has some direction to it, uh, it might even it might even be a really good period for trend followers, as we've seen so far uh, this year in 2019. Um, anyways, that's kind of how we um, fared this week, uh, Jerry. Um, what about you? And what about some of the things you trade that we don't? How how did that all play out? Uh, well, you know, just to mention that the grains are pretty weak. Uh, this, uh, so that was nice to resume that downtrend. Maybe uh, dollar strength in the European currencies and Canada, Aussie, New Zealand, um, Israel, shekel that was a strong mm-hmm. one, but Mexico, Russia, they kind of sold off a little. Uh, so it's a mixed bag in the currencies for us, and amazing strength in uh, the bonds again. Gold had some intraday volatility. I looked, it was down 20 uh, Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then it was, I think it was finished higher. So I think that looks like a really good trade. Nickel's coming back. I've given up on my long corn position. Silver looks kind of strong. But uh, yeah, so a few single stocks did well. Uh, I think on some of the bad days, some of my single stocks were hitting new highs. And I was adding to the positions. But uh that's the way it goes. You know, thankfully, there is some diversification when you trade the single names. Absolutely. I mean, that's the interesting part, isn't it? That you see the difference between 
a week like this week where all the indices are coming under pressure but as you said I mean some of the single stocks are actually making new highs so uh, so that's pretty good um, and of course we also I guess uh, there were some news out we've been talking about gold for a while it's been doing fairly well uh, to the upside and uh, I think there's been um, a bit of news out this week or maybe it was the week before that a lot of the central banks have been buying up um, you know huge amounts of gold uh, this year so far and for whatever reason maybe they want to diversify a little bit away from the US dollar who knows um, but it's an interesting point um, well, it's also an interesting sometimes, I think, to follow what central banks are doing in the gold market because as far as I remember, a lot of them sold all their gold pretty much at the low 15, 20 years ago. So, so maybe this is not a good sign that they're coming back into the markets. Who knows? Um, before we jump to, the, uh, to your tweets, Jerry, um, let me just quickly uh, mention that we've still got very few spots left for the live event uh, taking place in Manhattan. Uh, on October 26th, 27th, with some pre-drinks on the Friday and then uh, full speed ahead Saturday, Sunday. So if you want to grab one of the five uh, remaining spots, um, get in touch uh, as soon as possible. And you can do that uh, by going to toptradersandplot.com forward slash live. I think it's going to be um, an amazing um, 48 uh, hours together, really trying to solve some of your issues and where you can um, hopefully um, uh, shortcut a lot of your own research by getting uh, or some of the experience at least we've had in this space. Jerry, tweets this week um, with all the news flow from the, the Fed. Um, how, how did that pan out? I think we had some good things going on this week, some interesting uh, articles that I tweeted. Um, there was one for the Financial Times about artificial intelligence creates strategic dilemmas uh, for traders. Um, and the quote is, hedge funds seek to express successful trading in computer code to get above our emotional attachment to our own conclusions. Unchecked, it could become a slavish deference to the algo, destroying manners ability to evaluate plans at all. And so I didn't have any room to really write what I wanted to, so I just said, perfect. Uh, but uncheck me. Unchecked. Oh, my gosh. I don't want to be checked. I want to be unchecked. I want to be, I want to be forced to slavishly follow my algo and follow my system. So we, all of us crazy trend followers, we come in at it from a different perspective. Uh, I did like the idea that... Um, to get above our emotional attachment to our own conclusions. Wow, that's good. You know, so many of these topics we talk about week after week, it's kind of not, it's like 10 different topics that we just continue to talk about them. But sometimes on these tweets, people are able to word it in a way we've never really thought of before. And uh, this is kind of interesting that uh, we do have our uh, attachments to our conclusions and our way of life, our worldview. And, but we do kind of know in the end it's probably better for at least us to follow the price yeah it kind of brings me back to the start of my career back in the mid 80s when i was uh starting out as a as a government bond trader so uh without rules without systems um and um so i can certainly resonate with the fact that it's very easy to fall in love with your own position 
it's very easy to fall in love with your own thesis about what's going to happen. And I often hear, um, you know, podcasts uh, where they discuss investments, where they come up with these uh, expected uh, scenarios and, and how they position for all of these things. And it's not to take anything away from that. That's their, you know, that's their right. That's their opinion. And, you know, sometimes, of course, they're absolutely right. But what I like about some of the people that I follow is that they also always add, but it doesn't really matter what I think. You know, what matters is what the market is telling us. And, and that's exactly, you know, our point. Um, it's really not that important. Uh, you know, our opinion doesn't play any role in all of this, um, you know, but uh, we, we simply just need to, um, you know, take note of, of the market action um, because that's telling us all we need to know. I like to keep up with AI. I read a lot of the articles and it's so different than what we do. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about this, but you know, what we do is we look at this price and we try to just kind of follow the trends without too many uh, degrees of freedom or too many variables and too many if this then that uh, filters, you know. Um, whereas AI and big data, they're grabbing all this information and trying to come up with precise ways of, you know, is now the time to buy or sell? How many cars are in the parking lot at Walmart? So much different than what we do. This article is kind of funny. It kind of goes on and says, uh, the death knell for human decision-making will sound the first time a court rules a doctor has killed a patient by ignoring the recommendations of an AI-based diagnostic tool. And I, you know, couldn't control myself. So I'm like, or an investment advisor who ignores the system. Which is kind of Very funny true. because these, uh, some of the, people on Twitter that I don't like as much, they pretty much are convincing people that evidence-based investing, the conclusion is indexing. Uh, they, they may agree with, they may on one show or one tweet say something nice about trend following, agree momentum works, agree that academics have proved momentum has worked, uh, it's, it's the best. But uh, then to go right back to, well, evidence-based means indexing. And I've even used the words kind of like index denier, like uh, global warming denier. Like uh, it's almost like a political thing. If you don't agree with my politics of indexing, then I'm just going to throw you in with the uh, global, the climate change deniers. So you're an indexing denier. <laughs> so I retweet back like, well, you're a trend follower denier. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a discussion which I actually think is quite uh, relevant, but it was brought up by someone that uh, was a colleague of mine when I worked with you, Jerry, back in the day. And um, and uh, this person, uh, I think that's where it originally came from, at least. But but going back to this thing about a lot of investing advisors, they have fiduciary duties, right? So their duty is to basically do the best for their clients that they can. And so if all the evidence that we have, all the research suggests that you need to combine uncorrelated investment strategies or asset classes to minimize your risk and maximize your return. Well, we know that one of those asset classes or strategies is trend following. There's no evidence to suggest any other thing. All the white paper since 1983, when John Lindner's paper came out the first time, has confirmed this. 
So you could take it to the extreme as, as you did and said, well, so if you don't have trend following in your portfolio, then you're not looking after your clients and fulfilling your fiduciary duty. And you can then turn around and say, well, um, because often we hear about people getting into trouble for having you know, some kind of investment uh, that they probably shouldn't have. It was too risky or, or too illiquid or whatever. But now we could turn around the argument saying, well, maybe you can get into trouble by not having uh, trend following or managed futures in your portfolio. So I think there's something to it. I mean, I think we have people have to, you know, to be um, held accountable for not doing the right thing. Well, I think in that situation, we're going to end up losing. Uh, somebody asked me, did I really believe in that? And I think that they're asking me, do I really believe that an investment advisor who ignores the system or no, ignores trend, should they get in trouble? Obviously, no, I don't think that. I think it's silly uh, to, for, for at least in, in our world, as long as the fee's reasonable and there's a little bit of body of evidence. I'm not for a dictator telling us uh, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and putting it into political terms, uh, trend following denier or index denier. That's kind of silly. But uh, so I, then another one that I liked was um, another study that came out that uh, evaluated uh, how few stocks are responsible for all of the gains, the buy and hold uh, strategy and I think before I had read an article that said 4% of the world's stocks are responsible for all of the game. Well, this one says 1.3% of the world's public companies account for all of the market gains during the past three decades. So I posed the question. Um, I think there's like maybe three choices, but uh, probably more. But one is, okay, then own the index. Uh, those that 1% is in the index. Find the 1%, that sounds like difficult, hard to do, or use a trend-following strategy on your stocks, and then most all the stocks will be profitable. So once we, we've said many times that once you apply trend-following to a stock, a bond, a commodity, or a currency, uh, a market that has or has not necessarily been profitable from a buy-and-hold point of view, it miraculously turns into this profitable trade and so i think that's the strategy that we should you know people should adopt is uh but, yeah but doesn't that raise another question though jerry so if we say that's right i mean so out of a hundred stocks very few two or three of them uh are really responsible for all the gains right but the challenge with that if you apply trend following to that is that we also argue for diversification so we actually wouldn't allocate the majority of the money to those two or three stocks, we would allocate maybe to all 100. So we would get a lot of not so uh, sexy stocks when it comes to performance into the portfolio. So how do we deal with that type of issue? Um, because we don't we don't advocate concentrational, uh, you know, few bets with high concentration. So in that, I, yeah, I was just saying that. Uh... Instead of owning the index or finding the 1% of stocks that do well, trade all the stocks, all 500 or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, 30, 40, 100, whatever you choose. And then if you apply trend following on them, I assume a random selection of, a, of stocks of 100, you're still going to be in that 1% or 2% range. Mm -hmm. Whatever your portfolio is, hundreds of stocks, the 
whole S&P 500 or 30, whatever, um, trade them all. And then you don't have to worry about, am I going to find the 1%? Because they'll all right. pretty much become profitable. Yeah, no, I, that's fine. I misunderstood that. That's fine. I think that makes uh, that makes sense. And the other thing I think to just add to that is that we know in advance and we accept that when you are in a massive bull market and, of course, even with a subset of, a, of say, an index, we're not going to be able to compete with that. And we're not trying to compete with that. But on the other hand, we're not going to take, you know, we're not going to suffer the same drawdowns uh, and negative performance um, as uh, as these high flyers. I mean, let's not forget one of those high flyers was Facebook, but it did lose 20% in a day not that long ago, and it did go down by 40% following that. Um, and so, you know, one shouldn't always focus on uh, what's done uh, the best in, in, in a certain period of time because, you know, everything goes up and down. And, and what we're trying to do as investors and trend followers is really to create a much more, um, you know, holistic approach uh, and, and, and not, you know, shoot for the moon in, in any one week or month or year, which is trying to get a, a long-term, uh, you know, best possible return out of the markets we, we trade. And that reminds me of a trade that I had on where because, uh, the other part or another part of how we do things is this idea of sizing based on ATR. And if, you know, when you look at the list of best performers, it's going to be primarily percentage-wise, which we kind of ignore. And so our list of best performers uh, might be totally different than uh, a list, a traditional list that's just based upon percentage return because we are going to trade a, uh, a high volatile stock smaller than a low volatile stock. And I had a stock, uh, CSX, I guess it's a tr um, trains or whatever, tr transportation, and it had a very low ATR when I put it on. And it ended up having a profit of 160 ATRs. Now, you know, no one probably had that same return as me because, or the traditional way of looking at it would have just been based on the percentage return. It just happened to break out to new highs a few years ago where the, it was very, very low volatility. So once again, it's, it's the trend, it's the money management, and of course, we always advocate currencies, commodities, Bonds, stocks, long, short. <laughs> and so we don't live in that world, so we're commenting about other worlds sometime. We should create like a little jingle that uh, promotes these uh, same themes, you know, uh, because we do say them a lot, but it is so important. And, uh, and sometimes we all need a little bit of confirmation uh, from the outside uh, to make sure, to, you know, to kind of um, confirm that we're doing the right thing. And last year was a tough year for those of you who do trend following. Without a doubt, this year, it's a pretty good year, actually, so far. And and that's just the way it is. It's like the seasons every year. Um, and, um, and until you've been through a few of those seasons, um, you know, giving, give, getting a little bit of, uh, you know, emotional support, um, you know, from time to time is, is pretty good. And, and actually, I would say the same goes for, for, for our clients, um, you know, especially if they're relatively new to the space and also because they have to go and 
defend uh, the strategy when it's not doing well to the investment committee. And so that's exactly what we're here to do. That's what we spend a lot of our time uh, doing. And I think it's a very important part of what we do. People think of us as maybe, oh, but they're, they're just there to press the buttons and, and make the money. No, I think we, uh, and I think this goes back to this study we talked about a, a little while ago where it had been uh, shown from a study, I think it was Fidelity looking at their accounts, that the account that had done best was actually the accounts where people had forgotten that they had the investment account with them, meaning that they didn't do anything, they made no changes to their investment, just just kept the long run, uh, kept it for the long run. And I think that is so important uh, in our industry as well, especially with something like trend following that. Uh, you need to find a way to stay with the uh, you know track record. When you look at a track record like Jerry's or like Dunn's, I mean, it's extraordinary the amount of accumulated returns that they have generated. But you know, but I stress that word accumulated returns because any one year, any one three year period, you know, can be bad. That's funny you bring that up. Uh, I think to some degree the. Owning an index, which has been the best investment, uh, the stock index, uh, because stocks have done well and, and it's difficult to beat the index. I think uh, I was talking to a friend and I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's like they're doing nothing. They're really not doing anything. And so I think with long-term trend following, you know, we do a little bit more than nothing, just but just a little bit more, not too much more, uh, because at least personally, I want to be sort of long-term and hang in there, not get too excited about changing positions or getting out of a good trend. There's so many of them now. The grains have been a downtrend for over a year or two. Uh, the bonds, my gosh, you know, depending upon your time frame, you could have been long the boon maybe for 10 years, never got out. And uh, stocks, amazing. Uh, you know, there's just seldom is there a time to uh, get really anxious uh, because the markets go up, they go down, we get panicky, we get out only to watch them make new highs or make new lows. And so I think it's kind of, it sounds like a Seinfeld where, you know, uh, what works is doing nothing, but if you let us trend follow your stocks, we'll do a little bit more than nothing, but not too much more than nothing. And, uh, you know, there's a time to pull the trigger. I think uh, something like Palladium now it's been had a big uptrend. It's kind of crashing a little bit. So maybe now, you know, you may be more compelled to take some profits in palladium or prevent the drawdown in the palladium from getting crazy and losing a lot of money in, in the open profit. But so seldom is that the case. Yeah, I mean, um, I think for a lot, a lot of people, this notion of, of sitting on your hands is, is really difficult. Um, Nevertheless, it's it's super important, and um, and and you know, obviously, as trend followers, we can also be out of a market for a while, and so so doing nothing is also a decision, and sometimes an important decision to to take. Uh, but I have to say, go yeah, go yeah. So no surprise that those uh, fidelity accounts that did did the best were people who were doing nothing, <laughs> because okay. because it's so easy to to do harm. You know, yeah. doing nothing is not great, uh, but it. But it's a sh it's a shame that it's better than most people's activity. That's the lesson, yeah. you know. I don't. I wouldn't say do nothing, but I would say probably better than some of the choices that people make that are emotional and not systematic. 
Very true, and and of course also this is why we've seen now. I think passive has overtaken uh, active management in terms of the AUM uh, of of funds under management, um, and it is because active management in the mutual fund space at least have not really shown um, that they are better than 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 the passive funds. Um, which is and partly what we advocate, meaning do nothing. But of course, we want to do active management the way we do it, which is uh, long, short, and and with lots of diversification and 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 risk management. So slightly different from what we see in the mutual fund space, of course. What else uh, took place in 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 in, in your uh, Twitter feed this week? Uh, I, well, as, I as saw. As I said yeah. before, I feel like I'm incredibly qualified to take any article. <laughs> that has nothing to do with trend or markets and turn it into advocacy for trend following. So this particularly good article about um, uh, people not being able to uh, change their mind based upon science and evidence. And why is that? Uh, the article says, uh, those with the least understanding of science had the most science-opposed views, but they thought they knew the most unskilled and unaware of it. And so I think this was about the medical, medical and medicine and uh, vaccinations and things like that. And it was just saying like we, giving people evidence of proper healthcare or medicine or trend following or investment, it just doesn't tend to work. They, they harden their views possibly. And so how do we get people to make the right choices when they don't seem compelled by our wonderful evidence and so the article goes on to say, it seems important to engage the public more, earn their trust through continued, more personal interaction. Uh, dropping knowledge from on high doesn't work. And so I know after the show last week, you were uh, sharing with me some of your uh, techniques and how you communicate with your clients. And I was very impressed. And I thought that this is exactly similar to what you were talking about, personal communication uh, I'm smart. You're not. Here's the knowledge. Did you need? And if you don't understand it, I'll just give you more. And it doesn't work. You have to meet people's needs, talk to them. They have legitimate concerns. They're probably willing to change. If we change, you know, I think that my career has sort of been dominated by this whole crazy mentality of why aren't clients better? Why can't we choose perfect words? Why do our words not change everyone's mind? And uh, I think it's up to us to figure out we're probably not using the right words. Yeah, no, I mean, you certainly, I mean, it's slightly different, uh, you know, issue than what we normally talk. This has nothing to do with uh, with uh, how we trade and, 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 and how you succeed as a trend follower when, it, when we're strictly speaking as performance. But I think that one of the biggest struggles for managers today is really to, um, you know, raise assets to grow, um, raise assets from the right uh, kind of investors as well. And I will, since this is more the part of the business that I work with and have done for many years, I would say that this is something that probably only I came to realize, um, you know, five years ago, that the way we as an industry have been communicating, uh, you know, our approach, um, what we do, why it works, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, you know, had to completely change, or at least that's how, what I did. Um, and um, 
so I appreciate the compliment uh, on that, uh, Jerry, for for, uh, for for the things that we talked about. Um, but I think it's important. And I think there's still, a, you know, 98% of the stuff we see out there, it's, it's standard. It's the way we did it 30 years ago. It didn't work then. It doesn't work today. Uh, so we need, to, you know, so if you want to be successful as a manager in this industry, I think you really need to think carefully how you... Um, you know, deal on your on your communication side of of the business uh, as well. It's not just it's if, and actually what comes out of a lot of these surveys, conversations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is that when investors choose a manager, the performance is not the most important part of their decision uh, process or, or or you know reason why they choose one manager or another. Uh, and I think people would be surprised uh, with some of the points that, that that we hear at least as the reason why they choose one manager or the or the other. Um, and and of course, if we look at the AUM of managers, it's quite clear to see that the biggest managers are not necessarily the best performing managers, but they have something else that investors like, and it's very important to be able to identify what that is and to make sure you deliver on that promise as well. Good stuff. We're getting around. Uh, lots of topics today. Um, love that. Um, I've got a few good questions, but I want to make sure we get all of the good, good juice from from your uh, from the, your social uh, media interactions this week before we because that always picks up the vibe of the of what's going on right now. So, um, what else? I know. I like this one from the New York Times again. Uh, it's amazing that I can be this old. And experienced and still make an incredibly bad decision. It is so easy to avoid the work of determining risk based upon the day's conditions and just pretend that it's fine because it's always been fine. I just feel like I'm always comparing what we do to the S&P and you know to some degree I think that once again is what this means to me is it's the stocks have been fine they're great every all of my friends own the stocks convince myself that uh, I don't need to worry and diversify more and use a systematic trend approach. So I think, uh, yeah, that's that's what we're advocating. You know, that's what we're saying. That don't look at recent performance or uh, ask yourself the questions of, you know, if the world is really unsafe. And I think to some degree, it's very difficult to have a safe portfolio uh, real time, and I know that crisis alpha and short-term trading and shorter term, uh, you know, the short-term crisis alpha CTAs, they've got to get those trades on. So when the S&P, maybe this is the start, maybe last week was the start of a big sell-off, so my short-term S&P system needs to kick in here and really start making some money, and yet I think that that can go either way. We come in every day with massive diversification, uh, longs and shorts. I have short, sh short stocks. Even if the indices are at all time high, I'm going to have probably a few short stocks and in interest rates and currencies and commodities, long and short. So I think it's so difficult to get prepared quickly. It's much better to always be prepared and not to rely upon this system that's going to magically get me in before the S&P crashes. Versus on a daily basis, I'm really diversified. I have a proper leverage that I can handle that I like with trailing stops and 
stop losses. Yeah. Yeah, and you bring up another uh, interesting point, and that is, I think, exactly right. That that most of us feel that we are always being compared to the S and P, and 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 of course that's a little bit unfortunate for us in the industry because the S and P has been by far the best performing stock market in the world for such a long time. I mean, if we were being compared to a lot of other stock indices in the general, um, you know, observations and, and analysis that investors do. Um, you know, maybe uh, people wouldn't think of uh, us uh, as having underperformed um, for the last uh, few years. So, um, and um, yeah, but that's just the way it is. And of course, there will be a time when I've had when we don't uh, mind. Yeah, I've had conversations on Twitter. It's kind of frustrating, but um, so I'll say, well. This index that you're touting, you know, evidence-based, uh, low-cost index, stock index, long only, all the time, it has 50-plus percent drawdowns. Uh, but in the and you've just said how uh, passive doesn't work, hedge funds don't work, uh, diversification unnecessary because it doesn't help and it doesn't uh, always buffet uh, every single momentary temporary sell-off. And then the response will be, "Oh, I never th- would. S- I never would uh, adv- advise anyone to be long indexes only. I mean, but I just got compared to indexes only. Oh no, you do you know sixty forty? You got to have some bonds and real estate in there. Oh, okay. So now can you can you compare me to that? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's just kind of frustrating that the the story always changes just a little bit." Um, but I think it's very important for us to have a consistent message, which is a trend, systematic price, long, short. Shorts uh, don't get their due. Shorts are very important. Uh, currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds. Because at some point, when these drawdowns happen, the proverbial light will come on. Having never been able to see the truth before, down, losing half your money at every bit. Everything in your body tells you is incorrect to put yourself in that situation. They're miraculous to be able to see how important everything we've been talking about and never wavered, even when we got written off and criticized that diversification was unnecessary, trend, momentum, old school doesn't work. Uh, But it's just important to stand up and say, was there anybody telling the truth prior to a, a big stock sell-off, we just there needs to be a lot of people standing up and saying yes. Yeah, and if they don't believe us as trend followers, um, you know, even big investors which get a lot more press than than we do, like Ray Dalio. I mean, he's out there, he's advocating for finding you know uncorrelated return streams, etc., uh, etc., et combining that, etc., etc. So. Uh, um, yeah, so you would be surprised if, at least on the professional side of things, that investors wouldn't have had ample time after such a long bull run to get their portfolios, um, you know, in the right shape. Um, and 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 not because I consider us as being any kind of insurance, because we're not. We're just an uncorrelated return stream. But. If you think of it as something that could potentially help your portfolio um, during a, a tough time in equities, so let's just call it an insurance in that situation, 
you wouldn't want to buy that insurance after the event. You don't buy, you know, house insurance after your house burns down. You buy it before you make sure you're prepared. And why would investments and taking care of your family and, and your, you know, you, the, the money you've, you've saved up, why would that be anything less important than, than that? And that still surprises me when you see the headlines and when you see the big flows into trend followers and CTAs after a crisis, everybody seems, oh, but we should have had more of this. Why not do it before you need it? And of course, this year, this is the funny thing. There is no crisis per se in the markets, yet it is a fantastic year so far for the industry. I think the, the trend index, the CTA trend index, has having its best uh, start to the year maybe at the moment it's 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 having the the best year so far if if, if the year ended here um which is also why we talked many times that this label crisis alpha in my opinion is not helping us um so it's a good reminder like we saw in 2014 um and to some extent in 2017 that we don't need a crisis to make money we just need trends and uh when they're there, we're pretty good at capturing them because we are prepared at all times, as Jerry has said. You know, we're not waiting around to suddenly realize, oh, but we need to trade this and that and this and that. We, we've been doing it for decades, um, and um, but we, you know, we, we accept that it doesn't work all the time. Yeah, and you know, I had another Twitter conversation about um, you know buying puts. And buying puts are expensive or trading a short-term system that might get you short S&Ps and quantities that's going to matter. May not work. May not work all the time. Not only with our diversification do we offer the diversification and it, and it makes the portfolio volatility a lot lower. There's no opportunity cost. We make money. There's so many of the ways of protecting yourself and buying insurance. This is insurance that actually gives you back the premium. So and some, yeah. So it's historically better than trading just stocks uh, if you go back far enough. So not the past ten years, maybe, but a little bit further. That's a great um, episode on AQR's podcast a couple of weeks back, maybe three weeks by now, uh, on the Curious Investor their podcast, which is great, very informative, entertaining, and all that good stuff. Um, called uh, to diversify or to hedge and they go right into this topic you know how you know how do you compare people who just want to hedge so the cost of buying puts all the time for example and um, because i think some people still feel that that is a better way or a cheaper way to to do that but the reality is you can lose a lot of money if you follow one of those strategies i think they came up with something and this is a little bit from memory but i think directionally i'm right on this one that um, that that the index because there is a there's a there's a put index or an options index that does something like this where they buy five percent out of the money calls uh, sorry puts um, every month and they've been running that index for a while and I think it's underperformed the S and P by several percent four or five percent per year for twenty thirty years and and I think we can all work the math out that that is a devastating underperformance. In such a you know over the long run, so you would have had very little to show for compared uh, with you know with the index. Um, so yeah, we don't advocate 
looking at what we do as a hedge, um, but as something that can certainly help uh, when you most need it. Oh, yeah, I've said before, um, you know, when I got an email, a marketing email from a friend about his fund, he called it the perfect hedge. And I immediately responded, what are you doing? And he says, oh, God, you're right. Thanks for calling me out. And I was like, yeah, dude, it's the perfect portfolio, not the yeah. perfect hedge. And the perfect portfolio is going to underperform the best part of that portfolio sometimes. And of course, it doesn't help that um, the much bigger industry that we're in is called the hedge fund industry. And I think people unfortunately think that that means that all these funds are hedged. But as we've seen many times, that's not the case. Um, are you ready for some questions or do you have more uh, I'm ready Twitter? For, I'm ready for some good questions. Okay, I think we've got some good ones. We've got uh, questions from Sandy, James, Dante, and Ali, uh, as far as I can tell, quickly running it down. So um, let me start with uh, Sandeep here. He says, I would like to really appreciate, I would like to really appreciate all of the help and support you are providing for the people like me who has no resources or chances to learn and understand from the professionals. I would like to know which markets are correlated uh, or any material where I can get more details on market correlation between metals, soft energy grains, meats, indices and rates. I would really appreciate your comments on this topic and thanks again for all your help and support. So let me just jump in on this one first, Sandeep. Um, so since you understand the, the, the point or the concept of correlation, um, it's you can't really say uh, you know which markets are uncorrelated, which markets are correlated, because these things change. So they won't be uh, having the same correlation to each other all the time. So what you really need to do is to go and you know, and I think that you can probably get that for free from the internet. You need to go and back and and get some some historical data on on some of the markets within the sectors that you um, that you mention. And then you need to do your own correlation analysis, in my opinion, so that you can see how they behave with each other over time, but also how they behave in shorter periods of time in terms of correlation. Um, now, from our point of view, we, of course, are aware of this correlation, but we also into, but we don't know what the future correlation will be. Nobody knows. So sometimes you can also just think of it as, as common sense. I mean, if you want to build a portfolio of, say, 25, 30 markets, you've got your historical data. So you can see what the correlation has been historically, but you can also kind of make a little bit of a common sense judgment. I mean, what's the likelihood of lean hawks and, and um, uh, uh, the Australian dollar suddenly becoming highly correlated market, probably not very high, and things like that. So you so you put together a portfolio of markets that represent the various sectors that you mentioned um, because it makes common sense. So and and also that also means you should avoid um, you know too much concentration in um, in for example interest rate. I mean interest rates have become much more correlated these days than they were 20, 30 years ago because of coordinated central bank policies, etc., etc. So just use common sense, but go and check the data, do your research, 
uh, not only uh, will it help you, you're also going to learn uh, a lot from, from doing it. I agree with all of that. I think uh, using a spreadsheet or program portfolio visualizer.com, um, I think that helps. You can see what does that mean, though? You know, silver and gold are kind of correlated. Uh, what am I going to do with that information? So am I going to just ignore it? Because gold is much stronger than silver, and silver and gold have taken vastly different paths a few times historically, and then they go back to being 90% correlated. I can't tell you what to do with that situation. Um, I do know that it's not just the correlation of the markets, but then overlay trend following. So that reduces the correlation sometimes. Uh, for instance, wheat was very strong uh, this year, earlier this year, but Kansas City wheat and Minneapolis wheat were not. So maybe the wheat, you got run out of your shorts, maybe you got long. The other two, no. But they're probably 80% correlated. What are you going to do? It's difficult. There's no... I. I don't know the answer. I don't know what to tell each individual person uh, in that regard. Uh, but I do think it's important to look at the correlations and not just trade markets because they're there. You know, if there's a future on it, I'm going to trade it. Come on, seriously? Uh, I think when you get into stocks and you sort of see that there's a, a thousand possible stocks that you could trade, i got to make some choices here. And then I say to myself, should I be making choices on some of these futures as well? Uh, crude and Brent? Uh, yeah, you probably should. Period. I'm just going to stop there because I don't really have a good answer, except it's a dilemma and figure it out for yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And thanks for your question and for your um, interaction uh, with us. Next question is from James. James uh, Starts by saying, very good podcast this week. Really enjoyed it. So that's obviously a reference to last week's episode. If you missed it, uh, then uh, maybe you should go back and listen to it. Um, he says, uh, had a quick query. When adding new instruments to the stable, um, say something like Bitcoin. It has imperative, is it, sorry, is it imperative that returns derived from a certain set of signals on the new instrument are standardized into units of volatility in order to make appropriate comparison in terms of trade stats, i.e. average win. I appreciate one would want to do this in a portfolio construction phase. So uh, we don't trade Bitcoin, um, so maybe I'll throw that back to you, Jerry. But in the initial stages, I guess, is what James is asking for. When you look at the returns, et cetera, et cetera, what are you looking for before deciding whether you should add Bitcoin to your stable? Oh, I'm, I'm ignoring the historical returns. I'm just looking at uh, the diversification. Is it worth adding? Is it different? Obviously, Bitcoin is so different. <laughs> That's the one thing everybody can agree on. It's different. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I'm going to ignore historical historic uh, historical performance, which is very short. Uh, yeah. I certainly have markets in my portfolio that have not made money ever or in a long, long time. Uh, I don't think, from a systematic trend point of view, backtest point of view, that that's relevant. 
you want to include it because all the trades are the same. All the trades, they're all traded the same way on and on. The thing we keep repeating over and over that it doesn't matter what any individual market stat is. I like looking at the average trade stats on all the markets, but I try to ignore them and just look at the average for all the markets and say, that's my trade expectation or win percentage. Uh, I'm not going to optimize on a market by market. It doesn't mean anything. Sure. James continues with a second query. He says, second query was about price signal strength. Could you point me in the direction of any materials that would give me some details on how to calculate the price strength? Um, there was a chap on Macro Voices, Charlie McElliott, um, great podcast, by the way, who a few months back has previously referred to his models having loads, load factors in order to determine the allocation across various look-back periods based upon the strength of the price signal uh, in the set window and most probable realized volatility. So when I read this question the first time, I was unsure, James, whether you meant how do we calculate the signal strength or the strength of the market itself. I'm not entirely sure. But what I can tell you is when I think about signal strength, as you know, we don't use just one time frame. We don't use just one you know, set of uh, volatilities to calculate the breakout or, or something like that. So we have a lot of combinations that we put together uh, in the model. Uh, so we get multiple entry points, multiple exit points. So when I think of trend strength, let's just imagine that we had, you know, a hundred different combinations uh, that would all have to trigger, say, in the same direction, let's say long, in order for us to be fully long. So when I think of signal strength, I think of how big a percentage of these parameter combinations are heading in the same direction. So if 80% of them are saying long, and we're therefore 80% long, let's say the other ones were neutral, um, then that to me is a signal strength. Uh, you know, then that's a pretty strong trend because we have lots of confirmations that we should be long this case. If you're asking for uh, ways to identify whether the market is strong, well, to me, that actually is a way of identifying that the market is in a strong trend because otherwise all of these uh, signals wouldn't have been triggered in the first place. So I wasn't entirely sure if this is what you meant. If it's not, send me an email if I'm wrong. Um, I have listened to uh, Charlie McElliott on um, various podcasts from time to time. He is, of course, someone who has kind of made a name for himself by talking about, uh, he works for uh, Nomura, I believe, and he's not a trend follower per se, um, but he has um, developed some systems that does or shows what trend followers are likely to do. Uh, and he talks about that and he talks about certain levels where he thinks if that happens, then all the CTAs are going to be selling or they're going to be buying. Now, I have a lot of respect for him, of course. I'm, I'm not trying to uh, make fun of it, but I think it's a little bit too simplistic. It doesn't really work that way in the real world, in my opinion. It's not like we flip our positions based on one price or, you know, whatever. It's time and price and, and, and sometimes even volatility. So it's a little bit more complex than I think sometimes what it comes across as. But, you know, again, I'm not... I don't want to, you know, criticize. I just want to say I think I have a different opinion 
about it. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably all I need to say. Yeah, we <laughs> we looked at some of the his ideas and we couldn't. I think the three of us didn't know anybody who traded like that. And so, yeah, no. yeah. but um, okay. So but it's I, a good story, and this is this is this is why it's become so popular, right? It's a great story to go out and say, oh, but I think at twenty eight fifty, all the CTAs will be only twenty five percent long. I mean, it sounds great. It gets a lot of media attention, and it actually also is why trend following is not always well understood by people because they they believe, you know, someone who gets front page cover of Bloomberg. But it's just not what we do as professionals. Yeah, I think Marco, he gets it. He, he's done a pretty good job of uh, identifying risky periods uh, that CTAs probably were involved with. Uh, so I do like Marco. I think JP Morgan. But uh, so I took this question a little bit different, and because uh, mm-hmm. I too was I'm a little confused. But uh, so I think that um, this. I took it more of a, as a relative strength. So how can you tell me that uh, I should emphasize gold more than silver? And, uh, you know, and I think that that's sort of something that I wouldn't do. You know, if silver met your entry criteria, uh, the breakout, the moving average, the low vol, whatever your entry criteria is, and then gold met it, uh, then buy a little bit of both. So, oh, but gold seems much stronger by some sort of relative strength or stochastics or something. Shouldn't I, this time, buy more gold? And I would say no, because you don't want to do a this time thing. Uh, You want to buy a unit of gold every single time it hits your entry criteria, buy a unit of gold, a silver, every time it hits your entry criteria. And it's uh, in the, and so that's it, you're done. it may look right now that you know gold is stronger or silver is weaker, uh, but silver can catch up, and you're you're kind of blowing up your sample size and the need to be disciplined and follow the system every single time for the rest of your life. Uh, so I think once it meets the intro criteria, you're long or you're short in all the markets. Uh, I don't think I like the idea of let's trade some of them larger than others. Now, larger because they're less correlated. Like, I think I trade canola larger than soybeans because I have soybeans, bean oil, and bean meal, and I trade each one of those individually smaller than canola, which is not correlated to anything, not correlated to those three, for instance. And that's a permanent idea. Bitcoin, I'm going to trade that larger. It's not correlated to anything. Cotton, not correlated to anything. Consistency, you know, got to be consistent and not, um, no no relative strength. Right, and I think also, I mean, you bring up another good point, uh, which is, I think as, as, as if, you, if you're too close to the, you know, one of the, one of the benefits, of course, of, of doing what we do is that we don't have to sit and look at the screen all day. Um, and, but I think if you did, and you constantly were following the news flow to find the right trade and get in and out and all of that, I think you're very often would be asking yourself, is this time different? I think this question where people always think things are different this time for whatever reason and therefore I should do something different is really, really dangerous when it comes to investing. And so 
you know, one of the one of the key advantages, you know, uh, maybe you have some of that in your portfolio. Maybe you have some other types of managers. Maybe you do it yourself. But 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 one thing that we offer as a as an industry and as trend following managers, having done this for a long time, we offer a diversification also in terms of investment process. And we don't talk a lot about that actually. I mean, we talk about it in different ways, but. We, um, we, all, we, we often talk about, oh, but the correlation is low, it's 0.5 to whatever, and it's whatever. But, but deep, deep down, what you really get from including a trend follow in your portfolio, if you're not doing it yourself, is this different investment process that probably very few people do because there aren't that many pure trend followers anymore. Um, and I think that's super valuable uh, in, in your portfolio. I think it should be the rock of your portfolio, it, this is where it starts. Most people don't see it that way, but I think it's incredibly important. All right, let's jump to the next question, unless you wanted to add something. No, no. no. Oh, cool, cool, cool. So this question is from Dante. Uh, Dante says, hey Nils, just uh, listened to this episode. I really love the Rabbi Mahoney example because I found that speaking things to existence really works. What he's referring to is, uh, uh, my conversation with uh, Professor Andrew Lowe, uh, someone that uh, I really love uh, because of his great way of explaining behavioral finance. And, uh, and, and of course, he is also a trend follower uh, in addition to being a uh, esteemed professor at MIT. So that's where that Rabbi Mahoney example came from. And if you don't know, if you want to listen to what it really means, and I think um, you probably should, then it's on the latest episode of Best of Top Traders uh, Unplugged, or you can go and get the full uh, interview with uh, Andrew Lowe. Anyway, back to the question from uh, Dante. I had a question recently because of how geopolitics and central banks have been involved. There has been an increase in volatility and uh, unpredictability, which makes it hard for trend followers. What strategy do I use in these periods? Now, Dante, I know you told me you're sort of starting your journey after college, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think you bring up a good question that I want to um, respond to, uh, which, of course, I already did in in writing, but I want to do it also so other people can hear it um, because they may, you know, have a, a similar uh, thought. So when 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 trend following doesn't work. What strategy should I use in, in, in the meantime? And, and of course, the answer is you shouldn't use any other strategy in the meantime because we don't know when trend following will work and we don't know when it uh, won't work. So um, so, the, so the point here is to accept that it doesn't work all the time and make sure that when you design your system that you can withstand the drawdowns, that you don't get nervous, etc., etc. You have to learn to love your system, which is one of Jerry's slogans, which is so important to embrace fully, um, and and so so trend following is a it's a holistic investment approach, um, and um, yeah, so important to and by the way, and I think we touched on this in the beginning of the conversation today because I, I was uh, thinking back of, of of your email, and the point is that even though there's been a lot of geopolitical uncertainty and we, we don't know what the next tweet will say and, and we don't know if the Fed is going to do another pivot this year or whatever is going to happen, the point is that this year has been a really good year for trend followers. 
So even if we have volatility, even if we have uncertainty, as long as that is channeled through some kind of directional moves in the markets, we don't mind this at all. And, uh, and, and our risk management will take care of the increased volatility. Our positions are going to be slowly, you know, uh, reduced when we get new signals because the volatility is bigger um, and, and all of that good stuff. So, so that's part of your risk management and that's why it's, it's – some. and I think a lot of people actually misunderstand that because I've certainly heard from uh, investors on, on my side here is that sometimes they would say, well, you know, say commodities, that seems more risky than some of the other stuff you do. And, and the answer, of course, is no because we size the position – based on the volatility, the inverse of the volatility. So we don't take more risk in commodities as we do in fixed income or in currencies or in stocks. So another important um, part. Any, there's a couple of more good questions coming, Jerry. Do you want to add anything else to, uh, to Dante's comments about this? No, that was good. Okay, cool. All right, so we are back with the last questions here. Uh, quite a few of them. Let's see how many we get through today. I know you've got a, 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 a backstop on time today, Jerry. Uh, this is from Ali. Um, he says, uh, thank you for your podcast. You're providing a wealth of high, quali high quality information to the trading community wrapped in a delightful conversation. I'm a long-term listener of your podcast. I usually binge two, three episodes together. I really respect all of you and admire what you're doing. Thank you very much, Ali, for the kind words. Um, okay, here are some of the questions. Um, I heard you were answering a question from a listener a while ago with Moritz about the optimum number of systems to combine in a portfolio. I actually would like to point you to some research done by Dalio about the subject, and it turns out that the optimal number is 24 to 28 systems of zero-correlated uh, returns, etc., etc., etc. So, Dante, that's actually kind of what I was referring to earlier in the conversation, where where Dalio has. Uh, I actually thought it was a little bit lower, but it doesn't really matter. The idea is that yes, if you combine uncorrelated return streams like we do inside trend following, it uh, certainly increases the return and, and reduces the risk and all of that good stuff. So, so that's a great resource. But now your specific questions. Um, you mentioned that you trade, that's us at Don, um, 55 markets. And Jerry mentioned that he trades about 75 markets. And here's the question. Do you pick the market based on correlations, uh, e.g. Uh, trade oil, but don't trade heating oil? Do you pick one market from a sector, uh, say energy, based on the momentum of a, uh, of a certain period? Or do you trade all signals in all markets uh, or have some other method? Now, of course, this particular question, we kind of, uh, had just earlier today, so I'm sure you heard our our, our conversation about that. Um, I'll let Jerry answer, answer uh, summarize what he does. But on our side, uh, Ali, uh, yes, we 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 basically pick a few markets from each sector. We haven't really made changes to those markets in in a long time. They are the classical trend following markets that people started out with uh, many years ago. Um, but we treat all of them equal. So maybe that's where we're a little bit different from others. Jerry earlier mentioned earlier today that he might treat some more in a block and trade them smaller compared to others. We don't. We just, um, you know, trade the same. But there's no wrong or right uh, in, in that sense. Do, you, know, you should do what, what feel comfortable uh, based on your uh, results. 
Um, so that's how we do it. And so we treat them individually. And that means we take all the signals within our risk budget, of course. Um, but that's how we do it on our side. So, Jerry, if you want to add anything on your side. Yeah, that's right. You got a choice. I think, you know, if you want to trade all three of the energy markets, then uh, I would, you know, trade them a little smaller than than the uh, something uh, the risk I would give in cotton or cocoa or coffee because they're kind of the same or similar most of the time, almost all the time. Natural gas is different than those three. So you've got a choice, crude only or a little bit of crude heating on unleaded. Uh, so there's diversification in trading all three, uh, but I would do it a little smaller or materially smaller than if, it, if those three weren't correlated. Uh, so the total equals about the same. So... Uh, I do think I, I wanted to comment on the on the number of drivers, the 28 drivers. I think there's all like a, maybe I'm confused, but I think it is kind of confusing in that, uh, you know, we trade, uh, you, know, you trade 50 markets or whatever. We trade 70 or to 100 because we trade some stocks. And, uh, you know, I would say those are drivers. You know, cocoa's a driver, mm -hmm. cotton's a driver. Uh, someone else could say managed futures is a driver. Diversified trend following is one thing. Uh, stocks are one thing. International stocks, bonds, you know, buy and hold uh, on, a, on a lot of things. Real estate is one thing. Bitcoin can be one thing. So it's just a way to that, you know, everybody has their own opinion, a way of looking at things. Uh, trend following has lots of drivers, way more than 28. Uh, but I think what's, you know, the most important thing that driving, <laughs> that's driving everyone these days is, why should I do anything other than stocks since they've been so good and it's probably going to continue? And that's what we're saying. Uh, don't be so fast. It may not continue and it is one market and there's not much diversification. Yeah, good. Next question is really for you, uh, Jerry. Um, and it goes on to say, Jerry trades stocks. I'm assuming it's single stock futures. You might want to comment on that. Uh, anyways, and then the questions, are all stocks considered one position in the portfolio? Question mark. Or each stock is considered as another market. Uh, what is the percentage of portfolio risk allocated to this market? Uh, when many signals are triggered in, in this market, single stock futures, uh, and you are limited in the number of positions to take, how do you decide on which one to take? Is it the momentum, the trading volume, ATR? A little bit of everything here. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, well, I'm going to set up my risk budget so I can take all the trades as they come. I need to do them all. So I don't think that there's any difference between saying, I can't afford to do this trade, so I'm not going to take it, or uh, what something everyone knows is wrong. I don't want to take this trade. I've had five losses in the same market in a row. It's the same thing. You're not doing the trade, whether it's money management, no matter what you call it. I'm weak. I don't want to do the trade or it's money management, I can't afford to do the trade. So I like to set my risk budget up to where I can, where I can afford to do all the trades as they come. I forgot the first question, what, what was that? <laughs> oh, that was I about whether you, trade, whether you trade single stock futures or single stocks. Yes, uh, well I trade single stocks now, uh, a little bit of both, but mostly single stocks. And um, I, I uh, I remember uh, listening to you early on, Niels, and you were, I forgot how you worded it, but I took it that um, you don't like to look at, Dunn doesn't look at sectors so much. And uh, 
this sector and that sector. And I think over the, and I like that. I got to thinking about that and I was thinking, you know, I don't want to have a stock sector that I need to fill up. I don't want to have a commodity sector that I need to fill. I just want to start adding markets to the portfolio that are relatively uncorrelated and gives me some real diversification. So if I can't find enough stocks that are different, you know, Tesla, Beyond, uh, Canopy Growth, uh, Uber, you know, if I can't find enough different crazy stocks out there, uh, if I can only find five or ten, then I'll stop right there. I'll trade the currencies to the degree that they add value, but I'm, why trade the Swiss and the Euro or the, or the Euro and Swedish? Uh, it's kind of similar. Uh, so... I think that's the attitude you want to have. I, I, I do trade the Euro and the Swedish, but I'm just saying for illustration purposes, I like to get into this mentality that I'm going to add a market if it's going to reduce my risk and my, uh, make my standard deviation lower. And I don't want to have to think, well, I've got to trade bonds. I've got to trade all the bonds. They're there. All my competitors are trading them. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fill up a stock sector or a commodity sector or a currency sector. This is something I think we need to uh, move away from and concentrate on the perfect portfolio, which may not include every single futures market, but I would suggest include them to the extent that it actually helps. Mm. Yeah, no, very, very good. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, very good point. Ali goes on to ask a, a question here, which I, I don't know if we can answer it, uh, Ali. Um, I, I personally, I can't, but I'm going to see if, if Jerry can. Uh, Ali goes on to say he, he has an account with TradeStation and Interactive Brokers, but he also here has mentioned markets that are not available on these two uh, platforms. And then whether we know of a reputable uh, broker that have all these markets uh, and cover markets that are not offered by interactive brokers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, for my part, I, I, um, I don't know specific uh, trading platforms, um, so uh, so I, I can't really tell. Um, maybe you want to venture into this, Jerry, or, or not. I mean, um, no. Yeah. We, unfortunately, we can't help really on that because we don't know necessarily what, what, what people and we don't want to give away necessarily a recommendation for for a broker that may turn out not to be a good fit anyway. So just do your research. I mean, it's easy to find on the internet. Um, speak to them, figure out what they're, what they're doing and uh, it shouldn't be hard to narrow down people who offer all of the markets you need. Um, sorry about that. Margin to equity versus position sizing, the last uh, set of questions for this week. Um, if I have 1 million and I put on 50 positions, 25 long, 25 short, in uncorrelated market, each with initial risk of half a percent of initial capital. If they all lose the projected initial risk, theoretically, then the account will be down 25%. In the above scenario, I'm doing everything by the book to limit the risk of the portfolio. If I limit margin to equity to max 30%, and if, uh, and if after putting 20 positions on, I reach the maximum, does that mean I can add, I can't add more positions, even if by design I'm adding more diversified uh, diversity, time frame, direction, market, uh, and thus less risk in total. With the above in mind, where does margin to equity fit? 
in the portfolio assembly pyramid? Uh, is it before or after position sizing? Or does it replace position sizing? So lots of questions in that one. Um, I would just say that uh, two things. I would not use margin as a risk metric. I mean, if my margin was 75%, I would know something was up. But it's the ATR for each market. And I don't think as a general rule, um, we all need to have money management rules and max risk that we can have on. I always have a lot of unused capacity because I already said I make sure I have this unused capacity in case every market has a position. I've never seen it happen. Eh, it could happen. Uh, but I would say that uh, under no circumstances should one exceed their risk budget that they've carefully constructed with the excuse that, but it's adding diversification. Do not, no, don't do that. That's, that's not safe. Yeah. Yeah, no, very important. And also I would say here, um, Ali, that keep in mind that even if you put on 25 longs and 25 shorts, and, and, and even if they theoretically lose um, you know, all of them and you're down 25%, you have to keep in mind that they could keep on doing this. I mean, there's no r rule saying that they all that they can't keep losing money. I mean, we, of course, it's unlikely they're going to lose all. All of them are going to lose money continuously. But you all, you always have to think that a particular market can give you 10, 15 false signals before it gives you a good signal. So, so it's the only way to really know how to size your position, whether it's 25 basis points risk or whether it's 50 basis points once you've selected the markets, et cetera, et cetera, is to run some, some simulations, really, to see how, you know, what, 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 is, what is, you know, possible in terms of risk. And then you probably need to add to that because a backtest will never give you enough downside, uh, in my opinion. There's always going to be more downside uh, in the future at some point. So, so, so be careful with that. Um, you know, get your diversification. Make sure your trade size is, is, is small enough so that you can go through these uh, drawdowns. And I completely agree with Jerry. Margin integrity is just a visual of the risk you're running. It shouldn't be your risk management tool. Um, so we probably have to cut it there, uh, Ali, because we have a little bit of a time constraint uh, today uh, on our side. But we do appreciate all your questions. Um, let me quickly run through the performance so far. Uh, this is as of Thursday. I think Friday was... Most likely a positive day, even though confusing for many investors. Um, so anyways, the Beta 50 index is as of Thursday, so the 1st of August, only one day of trading, up 39 bips for the month already and up 8.86 for the year. Sockgen trend up 30 bips for the month, up 8.82 for the year. The trend index is roaring away, up 65 basis points, up 13.37 for the year. And the Sockgen uh, short-term traders index up 30 bips uh, for the month uh, or for the day I should say it's the same and up 1.52 percent for the year the bridge alternatives had no data for August 1 so I can't update that but it was up 9.10 percent at the end of July um, before we go um, anything you want to add Jerry or that we thought we we're going to talk about which we didn't no it's uh we're doing okay. some heavy lifting without Moritz, so I'm happy to get him back next week, hopefully. Yeah, he needs to come and, uh, and do his part. 
<laughs> so anyways, um, we, as mentioned uh, early on, we now have this new feature. We don't know if it works, but you can try it out. We hope you will. Uh, if you say something nice, by the way, it's uh, toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail, where you can leave a message, probably for now. Don't leave any specific questions because I don't think we can necessarily play them and, and then answer them straight away. We can when I'm back in my office, uh, but right now when I'm traveling, not so uh, easy for me to do, but we can play some of them um, when we mix the uh, audio. So that could be fun if you've got some feedback or comments that you want to share with us and, and all our listeners. I don't know how many we will do every week, but, you know, the best one. So, of course, um, you can leave a review if you want to help us out, uh, toptradersonplug.com forward slash review. And, of course, um, Jerry and I and Moritz, um, we do appreciate uh, you taking time out of your busy day to uh, stick around for another episode. And we very much look forward to being back next week. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.